Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Losing someone you love is one of the most devastating experiences in life. Today, we talk about how we grieve as we approach All Souls Day and Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead. Coming up, we hear from a co-founder of Farewelling, a company that works to transform funerals. Elizabeth Meyer Karansky says, funerals should be as unique as weddings or birthday parties. And later, bereavement periods in the U.S. can be quite short, with the expectation we make a quick return to work and normal life. How should we rethink how we process grief? That's coming up. First, death rituals vary based on culture. In the United States, many choose to bury their deceased loved ones in cemeteries with engraved tombstones that offer a glimpse into his or her life. With that in mind, cemeteries are a place of stories and history. Have you visited cemeteries in Connecticut to learn more about the people buried there? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. Now, through the New England News Collaborative, we learned about the efforts of a Vermont woman who cleans graves. Joining us now on the phone is Caitlin Abrams, who lives in southern Vermont. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Hello, and thanks for having me. I've seen you referred to as a grave cleaner, and so how did this all start? Yeah, so I've really always been interested in genealogy and history. I, I grew up in Maine and around a lot of old cemeteries, and um, I, in Vermont, I started to do a lot of research around here and into the gravestones. And I actually received a photo request from a descendant uh, through the website Find a Grave. And she saw the, the grave of her um, ancestor and noticed that it was in really bad condition and asked me if I would clean it. So I just spent a few months doing research and getting my kit together and that I went out and cleaned it for her. And the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> Now, you mentioned you spent a few months doing research and you went out with your cleaning kit. So tell me, describe the process. You know, how do you clean a gravestone? So the important thing is to really do the research, get a lot of information to make sure you're doing it in the right way. Um, you use a lot of water and a lot of um, what's called D2 biological solution. It's kind of the gold standard in grave cleaning. It's what's used at Arlington National Cemetery and other federal cemeteries, and it actually cleans away the staining and um, kills the moss and the lichen and kind of works over time. So I you know, spray it all with a lot of water. I scrape off some of the large biological growth with uh, just like a plastic paint scraper. Um, I scrub it with the D2, the stone, um, with really soft brushes. Um, and then I rinse it, and I walk away. And over weeks and months and sometimes even years, the stone will clean up and become um, pretty much like new almost. What's unique about New England, no matter where we live, is uh, the history and um, so many of these older cemeteries that, that still exist. And so as you're doing this, you know, what are you thinking about? 
So it's interesting. It is a, a very therapeutic thing to do, and it's, um, I, I wish I got this much satisfaction from, like, cleaning my house, <laughs> but it is a very <laughs> satisfying process, so I, it is very meditative for me. Um, in the cemeteries, I, I feel that we can really sort of tap into the collective human experience that we all have. You know, part of what I try to share, I try to share things about that person's life, what I can find out about them, and I think that um, kind of tuning into the experiences of these people and what we can kind of divine from what we see in the cemeteries. So as an example, if you come across a uh, plot that has a mom and a dad and then you see five kids that all died within five days, you know, there's a story there beyond just these stones in the ground. And I kind of like to think about that and kind of put myself um, into that perspective and kind of see what life was like and kind of, um, you know, connect with these people, even though they're, you know, they've been dead for 150, 200 years. You're hearing Caitlin Abrams here on Where We Live. She's a grave cleaner who lives in southern Vermont. Uh, you've been spending this time uh, cleaning uh, particular gravestones. And I'm wondering when you talk about the process, doing the research, uh, having the right cleaning, but also getting permission from these cemeteries. Yes, yes. So you need permission um, always get permission, even if you're cleaning a family member's grave. Um, the, you don't really need the same level of permission, but I still think it's a really good idea to keep in connection with the cemetery um, and have a good relationship there. So uh, usually what I do is I go to the town where the cemetery is, and I always say, you know, the town clerks in New England, a lot of times they're women and they just know everything. So. <laughs> I go to go to them and I, I ask, you know, who would I talk to about this and they can get me to the right person. Some cemeteries are owned by the town, so it will be just somebody that's, you know, in an elected position that kind of handles all the cemeteries, but some of them are owned by private associations. So in that case, I actually need to go to them and say, you know, can I clean? Is that okay? And here's my methods. Um, I want to make sure that they know I'm using the D2, which, again, is gold standard. I'm not going in and pressure washing. I'm not, you know, scrubbing with acid or bleach. Um, so, and generally they've all been um, really excited and, you know, it, and they really like the TikTok presence too when I share it on social media and um, appreciate the help because it's not something that they really have the, you know, the money and the resources to be able to do. So let's talk about the TikTok because I believe you've got more than a, a million followers that watch these videos. So tell me, uh, you know, why you started doing that and what you focus on in, in, in those little videos. Sure. So I, I just hit 1.8 million. Wow. Um, so <laughs> it's been really crazy because I just started that. I started with the TikTok um, grave cleaning in like May and it's just blown up. But um, so I, I resisted TikTok for a long time. Um, I actually had an Instagram where I would share um, pictures and the stories that I would find um, through genealogical resources of the people that were, um, that were buried. And I just found that it wasn't um, a really easy medium to use. Um, and my background is in um, training development for software. So I'm used to doing videos. Um, and I, one day I just was like, you know what, I'm going to download TikTok because <laughs> I was watching the videos anyway. Um, and I ended up in, you know, May, I, I saw other people cleaning graves, and I was like, well, I do that, I can share. And um, what I started doing was diving into these people's lives a lot more um, comprehensively. So I really just, I type them into, you know, ancestry.com and newspapers.com, and I just pull out 
stories. So what I do is I stitch together this person's life as best I can with all these various resources, or I'll go down a rabbit hole about their mom or their sibling that went on to do this, and you know, or I'll talk about the disease that they died of or, or something like that. So my videos are you know, just like two minutes long showing me cleaning the grave, and I, I'll do a voiceover where I kind of just tell what I found. So how many of these videos have you done, and are there any particular stories that you want to share with us from the research that you've done? Um, I don't know that the number of videos, but it's a lot because <laughs> you can't clean in the winter. Um, and, you know, in New England, that starts right about September, it seems. But um, so it's been I've been trying to share as many as possible. Um, but the story that kind of has struck with me, stuck with me um, this most recently was a man named Sumner Hitchcock, who was an engineer on the train and on the railroad here. And he um, almost, he, he, I think, in his time as an engineer, um, had to deal with three children on the track at any time, and none of them were hurt or injured. He also saved a man who didn't hear the train coming from getting hit, um, and then he himself actually died in a train um, derailment. But it was an interesting story because I was like, wait, what? And this news article said, this is the third child he struck and none of them have been injured. It made me wonder why people are, uh, whatever, having their kids on the track. But um, it was a really interesting story. And I, when, I, when I shared it, the person from that cemetery um, contacted me like, we had no idea about this story and, and you know, wanted to know more and we wanted to pull newspapers. And, and it, was, it was a really interesting experience, I guess, to find that because I think it was kind of a story lost to time and you know don't let your kids play on the train tracks right when you tell people that you clean graves or they find out like what's the reaction the immediate people that you know I think that with cemeteries and with history and, and death in general I think people either really understand the interest or they really don't um, so some people are like oh man that's so cool like tell me all about it um, a lot of people are, you know, kind of are more interested in the social media aspect of it and um, the genealogical side to finding that information. But um, generally people are pretty much like, I didn't realize that was a thing. <laughs> um, so uh, it's been really interesting uh, sharing it with people like in my in my day-to-day -day life, too, for that reason, because <laughs> it's mm. kind of a, it's become a big part of my life now. Now, can I ask, you know, as you're cleaning these graves, learning about people's stories, has it made you think about, you know, how you want yourself to be remembered or your family members? Yeah, I think about it a lot. And, and my family actually, my, my family is in my, my dad and my mom and, and stepmother. Like they, a lot of times will laugh because I'm like, I want to know what you guys want, like when you die, like what sort of thing. And they're like, oh, that's morbid. You shouldn't talk about it. But I'm I think it's really important to be open about our wishes um, when we die and what we want, um, you know, our sort of last sentence off to be. Because I think that funerals and our um, death rituals, again, really connect us to our shared experience as humans. I think it's a really important part of being a human being. Um, so in terms of, you know, I'd like to be remembered by my kids as, you know, mostly a good mom. <laughs> but uh, in general, you know, I think that I, um, if we're getting down to like the details, I really want a nice marble headstone that looks like it's from 1785. Like the <laughs> carving all looks like that, but it's, it's not. <laughs> That's my goal. 
Well, Caitlin, I, I think we've piqued our listeners' interest in your TikTok. Uh, do you want to share uh, your account name with us so that they can add to your 1.8 million followers? <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. So, my uh, my TikTok name is Manic Pixie Mom. Username was an afterthought, but I can't change it now. Um, and my Instagram is Stoned in New England. Love it. We'll make sure that we link uh, to both of those accounts uh, at where we live. Caitlin, what a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for taking time to talk with us. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. This was really nice. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That was Caitlin Abrams, a grave cleaner from Southern Vermont. Coming up, burying our dead is a ritual most of us don't want to think about until we have to. But why is that? We hear from a thanatologist about ways we should rethink end of life. And later, why is grief still misunderstood? Join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Burying our dead is a ritual most of us don't want to think about until we have to. But why is that? Joining us now on Zoom is Elizabeth Meyer Karansky. She's co-founder of Farewelling, a company working to transform funerals. She's also a funeral director, a thanatologist, and a death doula. Elizabeth, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for I having me. I've mentioned that you're a thanatologist, so describe what that is and, and how, what drew you to this field. So thanatology is the study of death, dying, and bereavement. Um, and I became interested in the field first. I planned my father's funeral about 15 years ago when personalization was not a thing. I made his very special and we had, it was fun. Um, and at the quote unquote after party, people came up to me and said, you know, God forbid something happens to me. Will you plan my funeral? And I was still in college at the time. I graduated. I went on to work at a funeral home and I have not had a career outside of this industry since. Um, and so I went on and found grief interesting as well. And that was when I got the thanatology degree and then became a death duel as well to be with people through the dying process. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear that you lost your father when you were uh, so young at, at 21. And interesting that this led you into the field as a funeral director. You've also written a book called Good Morning, as in to mourn. And so talk through uh, when we think about um, the science, the study of death and dying, and you know why um, it has, it almost seems like it's still taboo. People don't want to think about this until they have to. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I think it's obviously a tough topic for many. And the thought is, is, you know, back in the day, when we would care for our loved ones, and, you know, hospitals were more rare, you would be the person you would take care of the elderly as they died at home, you would bring them cold compresses and death was a part of life. And it was a natural part of life. And I think we were better suited to handle it. And as hospitals became more common and we kind of handed over our sick, I, death looked at, was, became looked at as a failure. Um, and then you had cemeteries that were separated from the home. People were no longer you know, buried in the backyard. And all of this separation made death look scary. It wasn't something that children saw. And as time went on, it became something we were so separated from that all of a sudden we didn't even want to talk about it. And I believe here we are today with a taboo topic that I do feel is getting more recognition and people are slowly becoming more comfortable with as we have, you know, Instagram or as Caitlin mentioned, uh, TikTok showing other sides to it. People are becoming slightly more open to the topic, but it's still a tough one for people to handle. You can join our conversation as we talk about death and dying with us again on Zoom, Elizabeth Meyer Karansky, co-founder of Farewelling, a company working to transform funerals. We're going to get more into what that means exactly in just a little bit. But here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, I, I read this statistic. But, um, there's the same number of funerals as weddings, but you know, is, has that been skewed now when we think about the last 19 months, uh, so many people no longer with us, Elizabeth? You know, I have the same statistic and I don't have a more updated one. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe it's been skewed as weddings were postponed and unfortunately funerals increased. Um, but it's, it's really unfortunate but we are forced to face this. And I think the only positive um, thing to come from all of this is that we're faced to, forced to look at funerals and forced to potentially confront our own mortality and perhaps plan for the future better. As a thanatologist, uh, you're looking also at how cultures uh, uh, deal with death, uh, burying rituals, uh, the grieving. And so can you talk about, uh, you know, that what it looks like across history and even uh, from a global perspective? Right. So I think, you know, when we when you and I discuss death and dying, it's, you know, American centric. And what's really interesting is that around the world, people look at funerals quite differently. Um, In other areas, funerals are the main celebration. You know, other places, weddings can be put off, weddings can be small, but funerals are when you really gather and where everyone needs to celebrate. And that's the main event, you know, places like Ghana, they will postpone, you know, funerals will only happen on the weekend to make sure that everyone can be there. And a lot of places, 
funerals are a celebration. They're places where you gather to meet people, to have celebratory foods, drinks, parties. Um, and that in, is to honor the deceased, is to have a great party. And I think that that's, it's really important for us to remember that around the world, people are doing things differently. Um, you know, in India, people don't really cry because that's shown as a pollutant to a funeral. You're supposed to be respectful because Hindus believe that once they're born, they never die. So this departing party is to celebrate a loved one moving to a better place, not, you know, someone being gone. And other areas, you know, in Indonesia, people are more comfortable with a deceased. They may actually, um, in small villages, the funerals are so elaborate they may they may actually keep the deceased in the home while they raise money for the funeral. Um, and again, this just means that not only are people more comfortable, but children are seeing death and being raised around death being a part of life. Again, you can join us. We'd love to hear from you about how you talk about death and dying in your family. If you've had to plan a funeral for a loved one uh, who has passed, what was that like for you? You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so, Elizabeth, you're, you've been a long time a funeral director. So, you know, how do you counsel people who come to, you know, um, organize a funeral or a memorial? service? And also, how do you talk to them about grief? So I think what's most important um, and is the changing conversation is personalization. And that's actually why I created Farewelling is that everything's about, we, we say, celebrate a beautiful life beautifully. And I think the most important thing is that a funeral doesn't have a script. It should be whatever you want. It should be your ultimate celebration or the celebration of the person you loved. And we very much push to personalize a service. You know, we actually have suggestions for themes, everything from a sunset beach to something for the avid golfer or sports fan, um, you know, making something quite natural for the person who loves, you know, nature to have a green burial. Um, something quite elegant. And I think the most important thing is to think about what that person would really want and to know that you're not set in a certain way. You can have everything from a completely natural burial um, with flowers that are from handpicked from nature and a home burial to something much more elaborate. Uh, you can, particularly nowadays as cremation is on the rise, you don't have to have a service in a specific place. You can have a party elsewhere. You can have a black tie gala. You know, I don't think you're, you don't have to think of this as a traditional funeral. Obviously religion plays a role, um, but you can work within cultural bounds and create whatever you want. Um, and that's what we push people to do is to really honor your loved one or yourself by having a very personalized service. I want to uh, drill down more on, on what you shared and also want to hear you talk more about grief, uh, Elizabeth. But first, you mentioned green burials, and I feel like that is becoming um, more embraced. I've seen stories, especially in the New, New England region, about this. Tell us how that works exactly. 
Well, I think a lot of people believe that once you die, you have to be embalmed and there's a very you know, specific set of tasks. And that's actually not the case is for many who choose to have a green burial, there are certain green cemeteries. If you want to go about that, some areas allow for, uh, you know, home funerals and you don't have to be embalmed. And the idea is that very naturally you're going into nature. You may be buried in simply a shroud um, or a very green casket, which would be something that's biodegradable, such as seagrass or wicker, um, a natural product that would be biodegradable. You would not be embalmed, so you would not be adding any chemicals to the cemetery or wherever you're buried. And also with home burials, you know, how does that vary from state to state? Aren't there specific laws when, you know, someone passes, you know, how the body is handled? And if somebody were, you know, wanting that option uh, for their loved one versus, as you mentioned, the traditional way, right? So the body then goes to a funeral home and it's um, um, prepared the way of the family and the, the religion. I'm just curious if you can talk more about that, Elizabeth. Yeah, so that is very much dictated state to state. I would reach out to someone in your area uh, before planning to have a home burial because it's not allowed everywhere. Um, But I would also say that even if you're not able to have a home burial, even funeral homes are, many are equipped to help with having a more natural burial. So even if you can't do it at home, if your laws don't allow it, I would talk to any funeral home and ask if you tell them that, you know, it's important to you that there is something more natural and they can assist. You can look on our website and see ways not only to have, you know, legally a a more natural burial, but also what kind of flowers you could have, other ways of celebrating that are more green and maybe more appropriate for someone who was a nature lover. You're hearing Elizabeth Meyer Karansky here on Where We Live, co-founder of Farewelling, a company that transforms funerals to a, a more modern, personal funeral funeral than what we may think of as a traditional funeral. She's been a longtime funeral director, and she's a thanatologist, uh, uh, the science of studying death and dying. Join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thomason's calling in from Stanford. Thomason, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I just wanted to share that here um, I lost uh, somebody that was dear to me, but they were a co-worker, and I wasn't a part of the family. And because of COVID, um, there wasn't, uh, uh, you know, a, a big funeral. I think only only immediate family were allowed to attend. Um, just felt that, you know, it was really difficult for me, and I'm sure it was difficult for others. When you're, when you're not a part of a family unit, um, but you want to be a, a part of that person's celebration of life and uh, to share your respects. Um, very challenging. Mm. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your colleagues passing. Elizabeth, what can you share with Thomason? So, Thomason, first of all, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, I actually, I can empathize with you and I can tell you that this is particularly tough time for many. My suggestion, um, and again, we have suggestions on our website, but what this brings up is the idea of a memorial site, which is something that we pushed very hard through COVID, 
is a virtual memorial site. Ours is free that you can set up and it makes it so that everyone can gather because I'm a big believer in the importance of gathering and sharing memories, sharing feelings. I also personally, I think what you can do, and I, again, I listed these suggestions, is do reach out to the family of the loved one that you lost. And I do think, you know, at minimal, send a letter, share a memory. People would love to hear that their loved one had an impact on you and others. If you feel compelled to, you can send a meal. I don't know if you knew their family at all. Um, but I would I would journal your thoughts. And if you could write a letter, I'm sure their family would love to hear it. And maybe you could have some sort of a gathering with your coworkers, something outside if that's if safety is a concern, maybe just have set aside time to honor that person and to share memories. You know, it either invite the family or not. Maybe it could be something that's specific to your work environment. Thomas, and does that help? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Right. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, before I take a, another call, I wanted to hear more about uh, your thoughts on grief and grieving. We'll be talking about that uh, more later in the show, but you'd shared with us that your father passed away when you were 21. And, you know, as you talk to people who come uh, to you for help, uh, in this um, challenging time, you know, how do you draw on your experiences to help them? So someone told me at my dad's funeral, you know, this is absolutely terrible. The only good thing to come from it is that you become part of a group and it's a group that nobody wanted to enter, but you're there. And the good thing is that you're there to support others and you get the support of anyone who's lost a parent. And I would say that my empathy is real. My heart still hurts when I hear stories. And, you know, if ever it doesn't, then I should leave my career. But I would say that grief is real. And I struggle with anyone who says that there's a specific amount of time you should be grieving. I believe that grief comes and goes. There are waves, there are ups, there are downs, there are triggers, whether it's a holiday and something you're predicting or the most random thing like hearing a song that your loved one really, you know, anything can trigger that. Mm. And no, grief is hard. It comes and goes and it's with you forever and it affects who you are. Mm. And we'll be talking about that more, especially, uh, you know, here in our country, the bereavement periods that are allocated uh, for people, whether they're employed or even when you take some time away uh, from school or other projects, you know, this, this feeling that you just kind of have to suck it up and get back to normal life. And that is difficult uh, for many. And and you, I feel like you don't understand grief until you have to go through it at some point. I remember when I lost both of my parents in the last few years, someone said to me, oh, now you're an orphan now. And that was the last thing I wanted to hear, Elizabeth. And it was such a weird uh, <laughs> thing to say to somebody. I'm sorry to laugh, but it's just so terrible. Right? <laughs> I think that's a problem with our, that's a problem with people around us is people don't know what to say. And I'm sure the person who said that to you did not mean to harm you and to hurt your feelings in any way. They probably were trying to show their empathy or sympathy. Um, and there are very few things that bother me more than the specific bereavement leave. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, the idea that obviously for many losing a parent, losing an immediate family member is painful, but for others, you know, who are we to say who are the most influential people in others' lives, right? You may lose your neighbor who is someone who you were used to seeing every single day and maybe they were someone who helped raise you. And our laws don't say that you can take a proper bereavement leave if you've lost your neighbor. I think it's such a personal thing. And I do believe that we as a society can do better. I think we need to learn what to say um, and to show that we really are sympathetic. That is helpful. And I I don't identify as an orphan today, (laughs) but I did find that (laughs) comment very odd as well. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Nancy Ann's calling in from Washington. Nancy Ann, what did you want to share? Hello. Um, I lost a dear one, and I found um, when I went to the gravesite that it was such a good space to grieve. Um, I am a poet, um, and I wrote a whole uh, section of my last collection dealing with that. But one insight that happened to me on my visits was realizing that not many people visited their dead, and that's a cultural thing. And so I wrote a poem called No One Visits. It's very short. I would love to read it. it go go ahead, Nancy Ann. What is it? No one visits their dead. Tombstones, a reminder of Moses' slab of laws brought to and stuck in earth. A personal wailing wall where tears might soften words carved in the testimonial to the beloved's death. A name left to the elements, seasons erase, like from a child's school tablet, because the numbers written down don't add up. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Nancy Uh, Ann. Go ahead. Um, I, I appreciate what was said about different cultures and death and um, the particular gravesite I visited, a beautiful one. Um, but I was really taken aback that I did not see others there. Um, and it's just um, something I noticed and what your commenter said about um, the separation of death, um, that it, at one time it was within the home or it was the dead were buried on your property. Um, and and so I, I really felt that separation. And the place itself just evoked um, a deeper sense of grief for me. It was a, you know, a wonderful place, a release. Um, there was something about the death being made public um, that, you know, was also a process. Um, so I, you know, I would just encourage people to um, 
make that part of their life, part mm-hmm. of their relationship with whomever they lost. Um, well, thank you, Nancy Ann, for, for calling into where we live. Elizabeth, did you want to respond? I was just going to say, Nancy Ann, I completely agree with you. I am an avid visitor of cemeteries, much to my husband's dismay as I drag him all the time. Um, and I agree, it's really quite sad that there are few people there. Um, through COVID, I actually spent most of my walks with my baby through cemeteries and um, I think it's, they're, they're beautiful. They have such honor. I think they're some of the most beautiful museums in the world. And I will say that around the world, there are other cultures that visit more. I was in Latvia and the cemetery was packed in Russia. It was packed. So rest assured, there are others who do visit cemeteries. Unfortunately, it's not really as popular in America. Mm. I have to agree with you, Elizabeth. I was visiting cemeteries when I was 12 because I was so interested mm-hmm. in the stories that those tombstones shared. And there are some beautiful cemeteries in our state that people can visit as well, even if they don't know the person that's uh, buried uh, there. I want to take uh, one more call before we head to break and talk more about grief and grieving. Ella, Ellen's calling in from New Haven. Go ahead, Ellen. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, I work as a psychotherapist, actually just graduated with a master's in social work, and I've spent a lot of that time thinking about, like, the both and of our emotions and life, and I just so appreciate this conversation because, you know, when I think about death and dying and the immense grief and the immense grief and sorrow that accompanies that and thinking about, you know, how can that also be a celebration and how can we also have joy and love? Um, so yeah, just like really appreciating what you're all bringing and definitely going to take it going forward, both like in my own personal life and with clients as they're focusing on, you know, their own mourning process. So thank you. Thank you for calling in, Ellen. Again, this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Elizabeth Meyer Karansky, co-founder of Farewelling, a company working to transform funerals. We're going to talk more about grief after the break in our society, which embraces getting back to normal quickly. It's a time to rethink that expectation. More after the short break. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Bereavement periods can be quite short in our country. The expectation, make a quick return to work and normal life. But is it time to rethink how we process grief? Uh, on our call today on Zoom, Elizabeth Meyer Karansky, co-founder of Farewell and a company working to transform funerals. I want to take a, a quick call. Uh, Kristen calling in from New Britain. Kristen, what did you want to share? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I just wanted to call on the topic of grief. I actually lost my mother when I was six, and I lost all four of my grandparents before I turned 18. Um, and it's over the years, it, there have been, you know, hard times, but 30 years later, it's I, I, grieving differently. I think of the positive and, you know, 
while while they're not with me anymore, I still feel their presence and things in my life. Um, and when I, you know, there are still some sad moments, especially with my mother around the ho- losing my mother around the holidays. But um, there's no, it comes and it goes, and I don't feel like there's a set time. And I also don't expect to, you know, ever be over it. And I feel like that should be okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, Kristen, thank you for bringing that up uh, to talk more about what you shared. With us now on Zoom, Dr. Yelena Ketsmanovich, a psychologist and director of Arlington Behavior Therapy Institute, also adjunct professor at Georgetown. Yelena, welcome, Yelena, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we've been talking about grieving, and we may think there's a normal process to it, but does it look different from person to person? And, and when we think about set time, uh, how do you answer that question? Well, uh, the m- most true thing about grief is that it's idiosyncratic. It's actually really, really different from person to person. Um, and there are many ways to grieve. For some people, for example, um, they really need to talk about it, maybe journal, talk with their dear ones, they like to be surrounded by people, they um, take in the support from the community, from the family and so forth. And <clears throat> the way they process grief is <clears throat> by talking about loved one and uh, the you know the good and the bad and, and, and also about their loss and their feelings of sadness and anger and all of that. And um, it's interesting, uh, you know, for, for the lo- long time, we assume that, you know, mo- processing grief, talking about grief and about, um, you know, how you're going through this process is a necessary part of uh, getting through this process. And yet um, we actually now know that for some people, that's actually different. For some people, they need to process it more internally. And, you know, for them, it doesn't mean they're not processing, they're just processing in a different way. Um, So that's just one example of, you know, how people can dramatically differ. And for some people, you know, they might be initially really in a state of shock and denial to some extent, or, you know, processing, you know, very, very quietly, very internally for months. And then five months later, year later sometimes uh it's going to really hit them you know it might be an anniversary uh we are coming up on holidays of course that are usually uh very much external triggers of grief and um that's kind of when you know everything comes back in a big wave and um sometimes they have really hard time so you know uh, it grief is very unique very disyncratic how we grieve what kind of feelings uh we are feeling when uh we feel better or worse, um, is, you know, all is part of normal human experience. Mm. At what point should somebody maybe reach out to a therapist or someone to talk about uh, this grief and grieving um, if it, you know, maybe impacting their their day-to-day, um, you know, maybe uh, months or even years after, you know, they've buried their loved one, Yelena? Sure. So, um Elizabeth uh, mentioned that, um, you know, there is really no per se deadline, right, that grief stays with you and never get over it. And and that is true. Uh, Yet for most people, we find that over time, um, even though they might have these waves coming in and the grief stays with them in some shape or form, they are able to develop a story of what happened, the coherent story of death. Um, they're able to sort of 
uh, accept uh, this loss as part of their life. They're able to revise and recreate one's relationship with the loved one, ongoing relationship, and they're able to reinvent themselves. They're able to find meaning in the new life without the lost one. Um, so, you know, most people are, are able to um, function, you know, in day-to-day -day lives and find meaning in life after the loss of the loved one. For a minority of people, and uh, research suggests it's about uh, one in 10 uh, of people who lost uh, somebody really close to them, um, mourning can really turn into, uh, you know, daily intense yearning for the deceased one, for the loved one, and, you know, constant, almost constant preoccupation with thoughts and memories of, of, the, uh, of them. And when these um, kinds of really, you know, intense, pervasive, debilitating uh, kind of feelings persist for a year or more, then we're talking about something called prolonged grief disorder. Um, we have um, observed this for, for decades, uh, uh, you know, both in research and psychology, as well as us who practice, you know, usually it's been called complicated grief. And very recently it's been renamed uh, prolonged grief disorder and actually um, just included in um, DSM, which is kind of a book of, you know, it categorizes mental disorders um, or illnesses. And so for, um, for, for people who, you know, find themselves again, at least a year uh, or later, you know, uh, being preoccupied in such intense way and who also, um, you know, really have a hard time figuring who they are without the loved one. They, they really, you know, have lost a sense of identity. They've lost sense of meaning in life. They're having a hard time with, you know, uh, connecting with the living or even going to work or going through their daily tasks. Um, they might feel really profound, intense loneliness, and and you know, which is not uh, remedied by trying to connect with with others. Um, so, for for people who are experiencing that, I would absolutely mm -hmm. suggest reach out um, for some professional help because there are treatments that that help uh, with mm -hmm. prolonged grief disorder. And interestingly, they're not the same treatments that help right. with depression, for example, and uh, or PTSD. It's it's a really distinct kind of combination mm -hmm. of of symptoms. And Yelena, I wanted to fit in one more call. Uh, Tanya is calling in from Shelton. Tanya, we just have a couple of minutes. Go ahead and share what you wanted to, to, to tell us. I just wanted to express that I lost my father before COVID. Um, um, grief of death was a constant conversation in our home. My were much older than me, um, and there was never anxiety or fear around it, just a normalization. And when he passed and when he was about to pass, I experienced um, a, a feeling my whole body started shaking um, I felt in my bones and in, in my body um, that I needed to scream as loud as I could. And I was in a place and a location that it just would have scared or would have been inappropriate. Um, and I ran out of the room and I, I had to stop those screams coming out of me. And I, um, th there were just no words. It was it was almost like I, I, it was very difficult to stop. Um, and so I wanted to understand more about that. Um, and if, if that's common or, or what that is. Um, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Meyer Karansky is still with us. Elizabeth, can you shed some light for Tanya on that? I mean, Tanya, first of all, my, my condolences, and I appreciate that your dad spoke about this in advance, and um, I think that's a, the way to do it. I actually, 
I have to be honest, I haven't heard that. I have heard people feeling that they need a release and some type of control. And my guess is that was what you were feeling is just the intense need to release your pain. Um, and I, I don't have a, a clinical explanation, but my gut would say that that would be it is the, the need to release uh, any tension um, and feel somewhat control of what you're going through is some sort of a panic attack in my, in my opinion. But again, I'm not, not trained to tell you. I think Jolena may have some thoughts on that as well. Uh, Yelena, quickly. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so you know, it, it's interesting what you're describing, and I'm very sorry for your loss. Actually, if you look through history across culturally, you know, this idea of wailing, this this idea of really sort of almost like physically, seemingly falling apart uh, during funerals uh, or any kind of memorial services is actually quite common. So again, you know, in other cultural contexts, um, this is uh, accepted and considered part of grieving. I, I think, again, we come back to this, um, you know, current American uh, state that, you know, we um, we see these little unusual, what seems to us unusual expressions of grief or, or as pathological or wrong, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. You know, the body holds emotions and this is just a way for bodies sort of to express that. And again, very, very uh, common across the world. I, I come from the Southern Europe, from the Balkans and, and uh, women, you know, wailing and crying at funerals was a, something very common actually. You've been hearing Dr. Yelena Ketsmanovich, a psychologist, director of Arlington Behavior Therapy Institute. Also with us today on Where We Live, Elizabeth Mara Karansky, co-founder of Farewelling. I think it's safe to say uh, from what we've heard from our listeners, what you both have shared, uh, we need to give people proper space and time uh, for grief and grieving and to provide them with support that they need. We thank you for your time today on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Katie Pellico was on the phones today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hannes Brown composed our theme song. We hope you have a great weekend.